In today's economic climate, knowing how to manage money effectively and to make well-informed financial decisions is critical for everyone. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. As part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign on financial literacy, this morning's show is all about money matters. Glad you're with us. New York is one of 13 states that require students to take coursework in personal finance to graduate. Reporter Jacob Anderson visited Norman Thomas High School on Manhattan's east side to find out more. Nefertiti Lee asked her class of seniors how much money they expect to be making in 10 years when they're 27. At 27 years old. At least $100,000. That is realistic. The answers range wildly, 49, 85, 200,000. Lee says most of her students live at or below the poverty level, and that before she starts talking about credit cards or college loans or budgeting, they need a realistic assessment of where they're at. The average person makes about $50,000, and you can probably live pretty comfortably off of that, depending on where you are, but they're thinking millions and millions of dollars. Studies show a link between teachers' own financial literacy and their willingness and ability to teach it. That makes sense to Lee. She's 26 and says she's very good with her finances now, but she had to learn the hard way. She struggled to pay off a credit card after college. She says she hopes her students can avoid the mistakes she made. For WFUV, I'm Jacob Anderson. For more on what's happening inside classrooms when it comes to financial literacy, we turn to David Anderson. He's the executive vice president of Working in Support of Education, or WISE. David, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. First of all, tell us a little bit about WISE. WISE is, stands for Working in Support of Education. We're uh, one of the leading New York City-based educational nonprofits, and we deliver programs predominantly in high schools, not exclusively, but predominantly in high schools. And they're designed to help students become entrepreneurial, to become social entrepreneurs, to learn more about economics, um, and specifically to learn how to be financially capable young adults. What does research show as far as how educated young people are today about money matters? Well, that's a very good question. I think one of the things that the financial crisis and the recent recession highlighted was that not just young people, but as a nation, we're not as financially informed um, as we should be. And there's a great deal of work that needs to be done in order to help um, all uh, all people in, in, in the country become more financially capable. Um, there was a recent study done by the FINRA Investor, Investor Education Foundation, for example, that showed clear majorities of Americans not being able to make ends meet because they don't budget, uh, not having emergency funds, which is really critical, uh, to be financially capable, not having a financial plan, not knowing the intricacies of their uh, the products that they use in terms of their financial services. And the population segment that is suffering the worst in these categories is young adults. And so really there's an important effort required that will f- really focus on helping uh, students, uh, become more financially capable as they move on to the next phase of their lives. Aren't 18 to 25-year-olds more likely to file for bankruptcy? I thought I read that. That's a very good point. And one of the reasons why we focus on the high school population is uh, not only that fact, but 
the number one reason why students drop out of college is because of credit card debt. It's not academic failure. It's not uh, an inability to get money for tuition and so on. It's credit card debt. And you have this segment of the population also, whether they're in college or not, that is filing the largest group filing for, for personal bankruptcy. And so what we're trying to do and accomplish is as high school students prepare for the next phase of their lives, whether it's college or the workforce, um, that they have some of the, the, the knowledge and the skills to be able to manage their money more effectively as they transition. And so hopefully we'll move the needle on these uh, statistics that are really quite uh, concerning regarding uh, young people's bankruptcy levels and so on. Is it a requirement here in New York that students get an education in financial literacy? Well, let me answer that question in the context of the country. I think uh, if we were to go back 10 years, almost no state in the country required any form of uh, formal financial education uh, for their high school students before they graduate. I think one of the things that the financial crisis has helped, and if it's a silver lining, if you will, is that more states now are requiring that before graduation, students have to take a, a semester-long or, or, in some cases, a year-long course in personal finance. And that's a very positive trend. More states are going to do that, I think. In New York, it is a requirement that uh, all 12th grade students must take uh, a semester-long course on economics. And it's also a requirement that a unit within that course must be on personal finance. And so to that extent, New York is doing quite well in terms of helping their students, the high school students, uh, at least learn something about personal finance before they graduate. So what specifically is WISE doing in the classroom? Well, we have a program that is called our Financial Literacy Certification Program. And it's really quite a, a, a special model in terms of financial education because schools that participate in our program receive from us instructional materials to help them deliver a course on personal finance. But at the end of that instruction, we have a national standardized test which schools administer to their students. And students that pass that test uh, become certified financially literate and they have a credential as they move on to college and the work or the workforce able to demonstrate that they have the knowledge uh, to manage their money effectively. So they so can actually use this on their resume. They can use it on their resume. They do use it on their resume. And I'll give you one very nice anecdote, which is that a student from uh, Tennessee, it was not in New York, um, uh, her teacher contacted us uh, one day and said that um, her student had in fact gone to her boss uh, in, in a fast food restaurant where she worked and it explained to uh, her supervisor that she was certified financially literate from WISE, and I kid you not, she got a $4 an hour raise and a promotion. Wow. Now, is that going to happen to everybody? No, but it's, it's symptomatic of what's very useful with this credential, which is that you can use it in your workplace. You can use it on job applications. You can use it on your college applications, um, and it can have an effect. Do you find that at times you're dealing with students who are then taking this information home and actually teaching their parents because they're not getting that education at home? Their parents don't know how to properly manage their finances. That's an excellent question. I'll give you an example. We had a student uh, from, from our network of schools contact us with a, a wonderful testimonial, and he said that when he learned about um, 
the the housing market, for example, as a as a piece on our curriculum r- relates to housing and mortgages and so on. He went home. <clears throat> he explained to his parents uh, what what mortgages were, what the interest rate and so on on mortgages. He actually went and researched the mortgage product that his family had. He found that it was actually not in a very efficient mortgage. He then went and did research around how he might, uh, the family might develop a better mortgage product. He explained it to his folks, and they refinanced. So the answer to your question is absolutely. And, and it's something that we measure when, when we administer our test. We also administer a survey because we're not just trying to assess whether students are knowledgeable. We're also trying to assess whether or not they're starting to change their financial behavior uh, as, as a consequence of personal finance instruction. And talking money matters with family members, whether it's siblings or, or, or parents or guardians, is a really important part of moving the needle on behavior. All right, David Wise is online where? We are online at www.wise-ny.org. David, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. David Anderson is the Executive Vice President of Working in Supportive Education, or WISE. Girls Inc. of Westchester works to help girls understand how to manage their money. They do that with the help of personal finance journalist and author Jean Chatsky. Jean's with us now on the phone. Jean, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. How important is it to educate young girls specifically when it comes to finances? Well, I think it's important to educate everybody. But young girls have a particular challenge in that we still only, as women, make somewhere around 77 cents for every dollar that men earn. We're still the ones who take breaks from the workforce to care for our kids, to care for our older parents. And so as a result, we get to retirement the balances in our retirement accounts are smaller than those of men, and yet we live longer, and we need the money to last longer. So it's it's a very, very difficult challenge, and the younger you can catch these girls and teach them what to do, the better off they are. So what work do you do with girls to make sure that they are financially savvy? I wrote a book for teens about a year ago called Not Your Parents' Money Book. I've been out in a number of schools giving seminars, talking to both boys and girls about the different things that they can do to make sure that they earn a decent living, that they spend less than they make, which is a lesson that a lot of parents haven't even processed, that they invest the money that they're not spending so that it can work as hard for them as they're working for themselves, and that they understand that it's also necessary to protect the financial world as you're building it with insurance, with an estate plan, and, and other things that can keep you from falling apart in an emergency. Are some girls still of the mindset that a man is a financial plan? We are really trying hard to make sure that they're not. And I think it's less of a mindset than it used to be. But it really depends on, on your models and how you're growing up and who you're seeing as the wage earners in your family and who your mentors are and who your heroes are. You know, I think it's very, very important. And, and most families these days are two-earner two families. So kids at least have that as a role model to understand that, that in this day and age, pretty much everyone needs to contribute. So what would you tell a teenage girl that you wouldn't necessarily tell a teenage boy, or at least how would you approach the subject matter differently? I 
don't approach it that differently, quite frankly. I mean, I, I think we have a savings problem in America. And if we can conquer that in our young people, then we're, we're making an awful lot of headway. Where girls tend to need a boost that boys don't is often in the arena of confidence. One other reason, one of the big reasons that women don't earn the salaries that men earn is that we don't ask for them. And you have to instill that confidence in a girl, I would imagine, as early as elementary school? Absolutely. When she's babysitting, you know, she needs to understand that she doesn't have to undersell her services. You know, she's providing a service. She's out out there. And, and that's a lesson that I try to teach my daughter. Jean, thanks so much for your time. Alrighty, bye-bye. Jean Chatsky is a personal finance journalist and author. She's online at jeanchatsky.com. For more information about Girls Inc. of Westchester, the group that Jean works with, visit girlsincwestchester.org. In New York City, as in many other places, there's a big divide between the haves and have-nots. Jose Northover knows that very well. He grew up poor but got himself to where he wanted to be financially. Today, Jose helps others achieve their economic goals. He's the program manager for Operation Hope's Banking on Our Future program. Jose, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me here today. I appreciate it. First of all, give us a little bit of background on Operation Hope. Uh, Operation Hope is a, a great organization. It's a nonprofit that was founded by John Hope Bryant in 1992. For those listeners who are old enough to remember, that was the time of the Rodney King riots. And uh, John Bryant, being an entrepreneur from South Central, saw something very devastating happen. He saw people frustrated with their communities and their lives and acting out in bad ways that didn't even help their own communities express their frustration. So he founded Operation Hope, and it was a place for financial empowerment where people can get banks and loans and services that ordinarily weren't available in inner city Los Angeles. And he started with a model of no loan denied. And he said, we're going to find a way to get people from where they are to where they want to be so they can qualify for a home loan and take ownership of the community because clearly you won't burn down something that you own. And uh, that was the start of it. And now Operation Hope is, uh, as we say now, no longer a teenager. We're entering our 20th year. And Operation Hope is serving people in 17 cities across the country. And we are in South Africa as well. And we've made inroads into other parts of the world. And uh, the mission remains the same, empower people to take control of their financial lives and, uh, and help themselves create the kind of future they want financially. Where do you primarily work here in New York City? Uh, well, our offices in New York are in uh, Harlem on 134th Street and 8th Avenue at the Hope Center. Uh, but we do service the entire five boroughs, and we try to do as much as we can for the surrounding tri-state area when possible. Now, you yourself are a native to New York City. You grew up here. Proud New Yorker, love, born Lower East Side, 3rd Street, in the blah, blah, blah years. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, native New Yorker, I love this city, and uh, I know it well, and it has a flavor like no other city, and it's a great place to be when you want to really help people, because uh, there are so many people here who do need help of one type or another. Did you grow up a poor kid or a rich kid here in the city? Uh, I was on the uh, the poor side of the scale. Uh, we were a family that had dignity, great parents, but uh, a little bit of lean times. You know, they were first generation immigrants, and uh, we had to take welfare and food stamps and things of that sort to make ends meet. Always with the understanding that that would not be a permanent condition, and fortunately, it was not. But I understand very much the challenges that young people face when they're living in a city that you can see everything 
aspire to everything and yet be struggling with almost nothing. So it's a, it's a very um, diverse city in so many ways where you could be with no money or homeless and see a Rolls Royce roll by. Or you can go to the waterside for a walk and see yachts and people with helicopters. So it's a city that took me a while to really embrace what it is I had to do to get myself where I want to be financially. But uh, I guess one of the things I'm here to say is that you don't have to remain where you are financially. It's a matter of uh, having hope. You are committed today to teaching others financial literacy. Who taught you? It was a series of people, like all lessons in life. You know, sometimes you get bopped in the head three times and on the fourth one you hear. But there was one gentleman in particular, a retailer I used to work for as a young man, and uh, one day he basically called me out. And I won't go into all the details of it, but he told me that I was living a farce. Everything external, nothing internal, everything appearance and nothing saved, and no real plan for the future. And he identified me square on the bullseye, and he gave me some insights into what it means to have prosperity in the total sense of the word. And he was really the first adult who came at me without a specific agenda. He just wanted me to do well because he saw a promise in a young man. What are among the top things you tell kids who don't have much and feel stuck? They don't know how to rise above poverty. The first thing I tell anyone I teach is I, I am fortunate to teach this you know, from third graders with learning disabilities to university students is money doesn't love you back. Always start with that premise, the attachment that we have to it is because of what it can do for us. Money's great. It allows me to express who I am in tangible ways. But ultimately, uh, if I really love you and I just tell you happy birthday, it's the same as if I buy you a cake and a card and maybe take you to the movies. So first getting into money doesn't love me back and really embracing that as a truism, if you will, and knowing that if you do bring that forward, now you can start to look at money the same way you do a pen or a hammer or any other tool. It's something you use to facilitate what it is you want but without it, you're still a complete person. What specifically is involved in the Banking on Our Future program? First and foremost, it's a real curriculum. It's aligned with national standards for mathematics and social studies, so it's well-received in schools, and it's designed to educate uh, children on the basics of budgeting, uh, checking and savings, uh, the power of credit, and basic investments. We've also incorporated a module called Dignity, whereby we address the matters of dignity, um, dignity in how you handle your money, dignity in how you save and plan, uh, the dignity of having your credit in order so that you can uh, receive dignity when you go places to consume and receive the best value. And it's delivered in five modules to school students uh, between age 9 and 18. And what we try to do is bring the message in a deliberate way, not in a condescending way. We're basically taking you from wherever you are financially as far as your literacy and showing you the next stage of development. So the curriculum is universal. However, we do break it up. So we have a kid's curriculum, which deals with fourth and fifth graders. The teen module works with uh, the students between sixth and eighth grades. And then the young adult is for students ninth through 12th grade who have obviously different concerns than a fourth grader. Jose, thanks so much for coming in. Well, thank you so much for having us. Jose Northover is the program manager for Operation Hope's Banking on Our Future program. They're on the web at operationhope.org. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. This morning, we're focusing our attention on financial literacy as part of WFUV's latest Strike Accord campaign. You can learn more at wfuv.org slash strikeaccord.
The New York Public Library is doing its part to help New Yorkers get a handle on their finances. On the phone with us now to talk about their programs and classes is the library's Kristen McDonough. Kristen, thanks so much for taking the time. Delighted. The New York Public Library is indeed helping New Yorkers better understand the financial landscape. How are you doing that exactly? What we're doing is taking the program of presentations by experts, as well as one-on-one personal financial advisory that we have built up over the last 16 years at Sybil, at the Business Library in Midtown Manhattan, and with uh, generous funding from the McGraw-Hill companies, we are pushing out this programming to five financial education centers in the neighborhoods of New York City. So we're pushing it down to Seward Park, which is near Chinatown, the Lower East Side, and up north to George Bruce, which is in Harlem and in the Bronx, the Bronx Library Center, and Mott Haven, and out on Staten Island at the St. George Library Center, which is right at the ferry. And so it's it's an attempt to um, use our real channels of distribution and make people who go to neighborhood libraries for children's hour and to borrow videos or to learn English, make them realize this is where their financial education starts, right mm-hmm. in their neighborhood library. The so, name of this program is Money Matters. Money Matters, very alliterative, yes. And it launched in um, the fall, and it will run through the entire fall and winter season into the spring. How varied are the programs and classes offered through Money Matters? They are. They run the range from understanding the very basics of credit and interest and why uh, installment plans may be better than leasing and loaning. They uh, start with basic household budgeting. They have little, some programs have a niche interest. We have a fabulous museum educator from the Museum of American Finance, Harvey Spiller, and he talks about the almighty dollar and the lure of it and counterfeiting and fraud. We have one woman, Jennifer Roxwood-Smith, who is talking about don't let the holidays put a dent in your budget and practical tips for stretching your money over the holidays, how to save for college, homeowning and uh, buying a house or a condo or a co-op, tips on that. Kristen McDonough, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. All of the Money Matters programs and classes offered by the New York Public Library are free of charge. They're updated daily at nypl.org slash moneymatters. Most of us are familiar with board games like Monopoly, but they're often played more for fun than a lesson in economics. That's where Nestec comes in. It's a board game designed to teach people to become and remain financially independent. Vladimir Fichtner is a co-creator of the game. Vladimir, good morning. Hello, George. How are you? Good. Carol Loeb is a teacher of high school economics in Corpus Christi, Texas, and she uses this game in her classroom. Carol, hello to you. Hi. Vladimir, let me start with you. How did the idea for this game come about? A long time, 20 years ago, we had a communist, we lived in a communist country, Czechoslovakia these days. And as uh, communists left us uh, back in 1989, everything was new to us including uh, financial markets and financial products. So we started to play Monopoly to kind of learn something, but we realized that we are not becoming real estate tycoons. 
by playing more and more. Yeah, you so, just own little plastic houses, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so, uh, so a friend of mine, Peter Pavlasek, was thinking, got the idea of having the game, which would be rather simulation than a game, which would really play, which would allow us to play with real financial products in simulated environment. So that's when it started about 10 years ago or 12 years ago. So how is it played exactly? In the beginning of the game, you become a financial advisor to a family. The family has several goals to be accomplished. You will have to help them buy home. You will have to help them finance a college fund. And you will have to have uh, help them put money aside for retirement. And you will have 30 years to do that in a simulated uh, environment in a game. You will be playing with credit cards, mortgages, insurance products, stocks, bonds, money market, money market instruments. So you will, you will be able to test all the products in a simulated environment. You will be able to get hurt in, in this environment and you will make a lot of mistakes as in, as in real life. But as you go through 30 years of experience, you will learn how to win the game next time. And because the game looks like a game, but it rather is a simulation, it will allow you in real world to replicate what you have learned in simulated environment of the game. What age group is the game designed for? Well, kids of 10 years and older can play the game even if there are a lot of pieces in the game. So it seems complicated in the beginning, but if you follow just few simple rules, you'll be able to win it. So kids of 10 years and older are able to play the game. So the game started off in schools in the Czech Republic. When did it come to the U.S.? About 18, 18 months ago. Let me bring in now Carol Loeb, who again is a high school economics teacher in Corpus Christi, Texas. How long have you been using this game? Uh, this is my second year to use it. I started last year uh, in the fall semester and played it twice last year, and I've already done it once this year, and of course we'll do it again. How did the students react to the game? Well, I think the first day they were confused because they really um, have very little background in any kind, of, any kind of economics that this is teaching. They don't know about stocks and bonds. They don't even know the terminology. They hadn't been exposed to disability insurance or all the insurances we have. To, they hadn't even thought about buying a house. Um, most of the high school students don't think beyond the prom next week. And so I think the very first day they wondered and they were confused, but they were intrigued because it was a game. And of course that got their attention. But by the second day, they absolutely were hooked and they were in on it. It was wonderful to watch. Give me an example of a lesson learned by one of your students through this game. I tell you, the three times I've played it, I have yet to have some student not tell us, usually the second day, but definitely by the third day, that, Mrs. Loeb, this is not a game. This is a simulation of life. This is what I'm getting ready to face. Um, I have had two students that were incredible discipline problems. One of them was failing very much, and he it, it's the most engaged I had him all year long because he said, this is something that I can really use after high school. I have had students go home and ask their parents, 
if they had any stocks and bonds, what were their financial plans? How did they set their goals? And just to engage the parents in a conversation where I've had parents call me and say, what is going on that my student is asking me this? I use it as a springboard for the rest of the year when I teach economics because it makes everything all of a sudden relevant to the student. Vladimir, how many schools is this game in now nationwide? We've just started uh, uh, becoming more, more visible. So we are in Corpus Christi Independent School District right now. We are talking to Department of Education in New York. We have just run, just run the program uh, with uh, pilot program with DYCD, Department of Youth and Community Development in New York. And um, we are just talking about how we roll it over if they would be interested. So, so we are just in the beginning. Uh, we have been testing it. You know, it's, it's been 18 months since we came, but uh, there were things which had to be improved and uh, we have to make sure that uh, everything is compatible with, with the U.S. En- uh, US environment. Mm-hmm. We have been in 700 schools in our 10 million people country already, but it's also worth mentioning that this is a tool which is used not only for, for schools, but also for financial professionals or for adults. Because everyone who doesn't have 30 years of experience handling financial issues can learn from the game. Everyone can get 30 years of experience every time he or she plays. Vladimir, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, George. Carol, thanks for taking the time as well. Glad to be here. Vladimir Fichtner is a co-creator of the board game Nest Egg. Carol Loeb is an economics teacher at King High School in Corpus Christi, Texas. She uses the game to help her students grasp economic concepts. More on the game at nestegg.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. For more information on WFUV's Strike Accord campaign on financial literacy, visit wfuv.org slash strikeaccord. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to senior producer Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend. <laughs>